If you have a Bible, I would encourage you to open it to Mark 5. That's where we'll be this morning. Here now as I read the very inerrant and true word of God. Verses 1 through 20 of Mark chapter 5 says this. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains. But he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them and what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to claim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. So I grew up in the Midwest, more specifically in Minnesota. I don't know how much you know about Minnesota. Probably that it's really cold, colder even than here this morning, right? Or maybe you know that's where Prince is from. But I want to let you into a phenomenon that you may not know about. Minnesota gets a decent number of tornadoes. Not as much as Oklahoma or Kansas or somewhere in the tornado alley, but more than we do here in the South. As a kid, it was normal to hear a tornado siren go off outside and, and to know the drill. We would head downstairs to the basement with all of our necessities. For me, as a kid, that meant snacks and a game or a ball to play with. But my mom would always bring a radio or a flashlight, you know, the things we actually needed. And we would wait out the tornado. Now, if you were to stand outside while the siren was going off, you might see something you wouldn't expect. As everyone inside their houses were frantically running around trying to get to the basement, the dad of each house had a different role. Their job was to make sure everyone got to the basement, then go to the fridge, maybe grab a beverage, and then head out to the front porch to see if they could spot the tornado. 
Now, they weren't doing it so they could report on it or for some safety reason. No, they just did it because they wanted to see something that big and awesome. To get a glimpse of something so powerful was worth the risk of standing outside on your front porch in the middle of an actual tornado. Everyone responded differently to this awesome force of power. Some ran and hid, probably smartly, while others were drawn in just to get a glimpse of this force, of this power. As we look at the book of Mark and our passage in Mark 5, we too are confronted with an awesome power, one that people long to get a glimpse of. And when they do, it can cause some unexpected responses, like standing outside during a tornado. The book of Mark is focused on the public ministry of Jesus and focuses a lot on the miracles of Jesus. That's because a central theme of the book of Mark is legitimizing the authority of Jesus in his call to discipleship. Much of Mark is centered on the question, who is this Jesus? Who is this man that can do all these miraculous things? And the book crescendos at the crucifixion of Jesus when a Roman centurion of all people proclaims, Surely this was the Son of God. Mark was written to a Gentile audience, so these aren't people that necessarily have an Old Testament background and aren't familiar with Jewish customs. And right before our text in Mark 5, Jesus had just calmed the storm in the boat with the disciples. And if we look at the surrounding chapters, we'll find that we're in the middle of Jesus' miraculous ministry in the region of Galilee. Our text is included in a section of Mark that is showing Jesus' authority over all things, over nature, over spirits, over people, and everything in between. Mark 5, 1 through 20 can be broken down into four distinct parts. The state of the man, the battle for authority, the response of the people, and the response of the man. As we walk through this text in these parts, we'll see that this encounter is all about authority and the response to authority, specifically Jesus' authority. Let's look first at the state of the man in verses 1 through 6. You'll remember that Jesus has just calmed the storm. And our text immediately follows that with Jesus and the disciples getting out of the boat and into a town in the region of Gerasenes. Jesus steps out of the boat and is immediately met by a demon-possessed man. You'll see this word immediately repeated throughout the book of Mark as a way to emphasize the action of Jesus' ministry. This is a fast-paced book, and even now, we move from one miraculous encounter to another. We're told that the condition of this demon-possessed man is quite severe. We're told he lived among the tombs, that he's been cast out of town and is quite literally living among the dead. This is in part a picture of what these demons want to do to this man. They want to destroy him. Now, we aren't told anything about why this man in particular is possessed, but we know that Satan and his followers hate God and everything about him. And the mere fact that this man is an image bearer of God is enough for them to want to destroy him. We're told that not even chains can contain him anymore. Nobody can help him. He's simply been consigned to his fate to live in the tombs until he's destroyed. Again, the state of this man is severe. He's obviously in pain and distress as he cries out night and day and cuts himself with stones, as it says in verse 5. The picture that we're given of this man is hopeless, helpless, destructive, and painful. 
Maybe you can resonate with feeling like this. Maybe not possessed, but have you ever felt hopeless? Have you ever felt helpless? Have you felt great pain? What do you turn to in those times? As we look at verse 6, we can see the desperation of this man for someone, anyone, to help him. As he sees Jesus from afar, runs to him, and falls at his feet. Later in this passage, the next verse, actually, we'll see that the demons in this man knew who Jesus was. But it's likely that this man didn't know who Jesus was at this point. So we can feel his desperation as he sees someone and longs to be helped because nobody has been able to help him up to this point, though they've tried. This man is living among the dead, seemingly on the brink of death. He's desperate to be freed and healed and brought back to life. As we move to the confrontation between Jesus and the demons in verses 7 through 13, we can see that the demons have now taken over as the mouthpiece of this man. On first reading of verses 7 and 8, you might think that the demons here are submitting to Jesus. And in part they are because of who Jesus is. But what's really going on here is the demons are attempting to gain power over Jesus. Remember, this passage is all about authority. And these times to be able to name someone was to have authority over them. This is like modern day, if you've ever seen two guys having an argument or disagreeing about something, and one guy calls the other one something like buddy or champ. You know at that point that's not a term of endearment, and he's trying to belittle the other person. When the demons name Jesus, they're attempting to assert power and authority over him. This obviously fails, though, as the demons beg, do not torment me. And Jesus flips their attempt on them by asking, what is your name? Still hoping to intimidate Jesus, they reply, my name is Legion, for we are many. A legion was a Roman army unit made up of somewhere between two and 6,000 soldiers. This is further shown in a few verses as the demons enter about 2,000 pigs, but we'll get there in a minute. We can see the longer the demons are confronted by Jesus, the more and more their power and position diminishes <clears throat> as they beg Jesus not to send them out of the country in verse 10. We'll see begging be a theme and something that is repeated throughout this passage. It's becoming more and more clear that Jesus is the authority here and not these legions. Still bent on destruction as is their nature, the demons again beg that they can instead go into the nearby pigs. Now, this is a somewhat puzzling turn of events. Why do they enter pigs, and why do they rush into the sea to be killed? I can hear echoes of Pastor Birch, and I agree. That's a lot of bacon that's now going to waste. <laughs> What's going on here? Well, first, let's look at why pigs. The inclusion of pigs is another insight that this is a Gentile place because pigs were considered unclean by Jewish custom. So pigs would not have been around a Jewish-centric place. So Jesus now symbolically sends these evil, unclean spirits into an unclean animal. But why do these demons enter these pigs and promptly rush to their death? Well, I think this too is a picture or an image of the authority of Jesus, both now and in the future. This scene is foreshadowing of Revelation 20.10, which reads, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, 
where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. Here, Jesus' final authority is executed. Where these demons are thrown into the sea, one day Jesus will throw Satan and all of evil into the lake of fire, where evil will be defeated forever. This is a glimpse of Jesus' absolute authority. Not only this, but verse 13 states that Jesus gave them permission to go into the pigs, which they ultimately do, and again cause the death of. Jesus' authority is made plain as he grants permission to these demons. Permission only comes from a place of authority. You all know this to be true because you've probably been given permission by somebody to do something in your life when that person did not have the right to give you permission and it rubbed you the wrong way. For example, if my wife were to say, I'm going to go to the grocery store, and I responded with, sure, you have my permission to go to the grocery store. (laughs) I think you all that are married know how that conversation would go. On the other hand, if I were to either grant or deny my daughter permission to go to a friend's house or to enroll in some extracurricular activity, nobody would have a problem because I have that authority to make that decision as her parent. To grant permission shows authority over someone else. Who has authority over your life? Do you get to decide what your life is? Or does God get to decide what your life is? Here's the reality of Jesus' authority. It's not a matter of whether or not I give Jesus authority over my life. He has it. Really, it's a matter of whether I'm going to submit to that or not. And we get two different examples of how people respond to the authority of Jesus in the last sections of these texts. As Jesus' authority has been established, let's look at how the townspeople respond in verses 14 through 17. Those at the scene flee and tell the town and everyone they can find about what happened. As you and I probably naturally would, the people come out to see for themselves what had happened. What they found surprised them. Read in verse 15. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. Contrast what they found with the description that we were given earlier in the first few verses of this text. He's now sitting, clothed and in his right mind. These people knew this man as the one who lived among the tombs, who cried out and cut himself with stones, who couldn't be bound even by chains. It's possible that some of these people that came to see were the very ones who tried to help this man and couldn't. And they now find Jesus, find him with Jesus, acting like a normal human being. What do you expect their response to be? Maybe awe, joy, shock, perhaps thanks, thankfulness? Well, let's read in verse 15. Sitting there clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. Just like we would have seen right before this in Mark 4, 35 through 41, when Jesus calms the storm, their response to the power and authority of Jesus is fear. Who is this that has authority over nature and demonic spirits? Now their fear of this power and authority doesn't draw them in to learn more, but does the opposite. They now beg Jesus to leave in verse 17. Now, before we're too harsh on these people, how would we have responded? Their livestock and likely their livelihood have just been destroyed at the word of this man. 
This man interrupted their lives and changed everything about it. The man is healed. The pigs are dead. The demons seem to have left. What are they to make of this man? How do we respond when God interrupts our lives? In the sake of full disclosure, I want to tell you briefly how God interrupted my life. I love football, and I grew up playing football. I played all my life, and when I was in high school, it became apparent that I was actually pretty good at football. I began to have dreams and aspirations of playing football in college and even professionally, and was told that was a real possibility and something I should work towards. But in my junior year of high school, I had a pretty severe back injury that I had to have surgery on. But I was determined to see this dream through, so I ended up playing college football in South Dakota. While there, I injured my back again and had to have another surgery, and this time doctors told me I was done. I couldn't play football anymore. Everything I had worked for and everything about who I was as a person was gone in an instant. Now, at this point in my life, I wasn't a Christian. I was simply someone who acknowledged that there was a God and claimed Christianity out of cultural or societal norms. Basically, I went to church once in a while, and I thought that Everyone was a Christian. That's just part of who we are. If you're not a Muslim or Jewish, you're a Christian. Now, I didn't know much of anything about God, but I knew that he was supposed to be in control of everything. He had authority and power. And if he had authority and power and could interrupt my life, the one that I felt he owed me and the one that I had worked for and deserved, then I, and, and ruin it, then I wanted nothing to do with him. Probably similar to how these townspeople felt. This man shows up and clearly has some power and authority, and the first thing he does is upend our lives. So they respond with, please leave. They didn't have a problem with a demon-possessed man in their midst, but they did mind having Jesus around. They were more afraid of what Jesus might do than what the demon-possessed man had been doing. Might that be true of us? Are we more concerned with following Jesus, whatever the cost may be, or will we abandon him for the sake of having things our way, the way we want them? In verses 18 to 20, we see that the now healed man responds differently. Jesus honors the begging of the people and is leaving to get back into the boat. But now the man he healed begs him to go with him, that he might be with him. We get our final begging in this passage, this time by a man who begs Jesus not to send them away or for Jesus himself to go away, but that he might be with him. Now it is the response of Jesus that might surprise you. Verse 19 says that he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Jesus is again presented with a request in which he has to give permission to. And this time, he does not permit it. Upon first reading, this might seem backwards. Jesus has been begged by demons to let them go into pigs, and he grants them permission. He's been begged by the townspeople to leave, and he does. And now this man seems to have the right response to Jesus and his authority, and begs him to be with him. And now Jesus says no, how are we to make sense of this? You might be thinking to yourself, that's not fair, or that doesn't seem right. But here's something important about authority that we need to keep in mind. It doesn't require explanation. 
This can be hard for me to grasp and live with, but if God has absolute authority over me, which he does, he can tell me anything, command me anything, deny me anything, and it requires no explanation on his part. The the dictionary defines authority as the power or right to give orders, make decisions, and enforce obedience. And Jesus has ultimate authority. Now that alone is enough to make us obey whatever Jesus says, but we also know that Jesus is for us. Even in his command in verse 19, he tells the man to tell his friends and everyone else how the Lord has had mercy on him. We also have texts like Romans 8.28, which reads, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. In verses 31 and 32, just after that, If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will we not also with him graciously give us all things? Jesus not only has authority over us, but he's also for our good. We might not always understand why things happen the way they do, but they will always work for our good and his glory. And verse 20 shows us that. The man responds in obedience and leaves, and began proclaiming how much Jesus had done for him. And what does this verse tell us the result is? Everyone marveled. I don't know about you, but I struggle with control. I want to know why things are happening, and I want to know where my life is going. But Paul tells us the Christian walk is by faith, not by sight. What we are called to do is trust the one who has authority and obey and know that it is for our good. And that was true for this man. It was actually better that this man not go with Jesus, but stay and be a witness to the mercy and greatness of God. Jesus saying no to this man's request was actually a blessing in his life, even though he might have been asking for a good thing. I think this is a beautiful word to us as we embark on LOPC 2.0 together, as we seek to be a blessing to the community around us and grow our church family. Perhaps you feel nervous or ill-equipped, but look closely at what Jesus calls this man to do. He doesn't tell him he needs to be the world's greatest apologist, the most renowned evangelist. He simply says, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you, and how he has had mercy on you. I've only got to see this from afar and and hear this from afar, but part of what drew Ellen and I here was LOPC 2.0 and the vision of the past and the future together. So what is LOPC 2.0 all about? Looking at the mercy God has had on us in this church in the past and present and simply telling others about that mercy. This man may not know much, but he knows this. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was dead, but now I'm alive. Let's go forth and proclaim the mercies of God to this community so that they too may marvel at our Savior. Looking back, I'm so thankful that God interrupted my life the way he did. Initially, I was angry at God. I blamed him at taking away the life that I thought that I had worked for and deserved. But he used that to ultimately bring me to himself. And I finally heard the gospel clearly for the first time. And it was nothing but good news. 
I had no idea the severity of my sin and no idea the lengths God would go to bring me back into his arms. Here's the beauty and amazing thing about the gospel. And this God who has all authority. The solution to our problem, or rather the severity of the solution, is directly proportionate to the severity of our problem. So a few years ago, I went hiking with some friends. And while we were out hiking, one of the guys stepped wrong and twisted his ankle pretty badly. We were something like a mile and a half into the hike and had gained a decent amount of elevation. And now this guy couldn't put any weight on his ankle. He couldn't walk. So a couple of us took him over our shoulders and we hopped all the way back to our cars, deeming that to be the best solution or response. Our response to his injury, or for any injury for that matter, is directly proportionate to the severity of the problem. So if I got hurt on our hike, and the solution is I need a Band-Aid, what does that tell you about the severity of my injury? It's not that bad. On the other hand, if I got hurt on our hike, and the solution is I need to be airlifted out of here, what does that tell you about the severity of that injury? It's life or death. So if the solution to our sin is that this all-sovereign, all-authority-having God had to come and die on our behalf, what does that say about our situation? Is there any more drastic solution? We must remember that while God has complete and utter authority over everything, he is completely and utterly for us. So much so that he himself would give himself on the cross so that we might be with him for eternity. This passage is all about the authority of Jesus and the response to that authority. Jesus has authority over nature, over demons, over people, over planets, over molecules, over everything, everywhere. As Abraham Kuyper once said, there is not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. The demons responded to Jesus' authority by trying to assert authority over him and then fleeing when that failed. The townspeople responded by trying to get Jesus as far away as possible. And the man responded by being obedient, even when his request was denied. How do we respond to the authority of God? Do we buck up against it and say, no, I have authority over my own life? Do we try to avoid God? Do we say that, well, be obedient as long as things are going well and I get things the way that I want them? Or do we humbly submit to the sovereign king of the universe? I'll close with saying this one more time. It's not a matter of whether or not Jesus has authority over my life. He has it. Really, it's a matter of whether or not I submit to that authority. So let's go forth and submit in humble obedience, knowing that God does have authority over us, but he's also for us. Let's pray.